Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. If you are just listening for the very first time, or if you've been a long-time listener, I want to say welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to The Modern Manager. I feel so honored to be part of your day. And I'm so excited to know that you are investing in yourself and your team, because that's why I do this, to help people like you be a rock star manager with a thriving team. My guest today is Jesse Fowl. Jesse believes that every human is an emotional being who's in tune with the framework of relationships. Whether consciously or not, people know when other people care. As the managing director and lead strategist at Solomon, he is an expert in turning customer-centered design into reality, enabled by his team's mastery of technology and data-driven insight. Jesse and I talk about failure. If you want to be creative and innovative, failure is a core component of it. We talk about why people fear failure, the process of innovation, and creating a team dynamic that's a safe space for failure. Now here's my interview with Jesse. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Jesse, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. And I am really excited to talk about failure because it's something that we don't talk about very often as managers. It's true because it's a bad thing, right? (laughs) Well, why is it a bad thing though? There's this struggle, I think, with the word failure, right? I think we hear it all the time in terms of like, fail fast, fail often. I read a really inspiring article at the time, which was a father at dinner, always asked his daughter, how did you fail today? And if she didn't have a good story to say, then they would try something new and fail at it. And it was just a, you know, a way to get her to reach higher for different accomplishments. But then there's this reality that sets in, especially in the workplace, that we've seen people fail, right? We've seen people that have like staked their careers on what seemed like really good ideas and turned out that those ideas didn't work out and their careers suffered for it. We've just seen the negative consequences of failure. And I think that we're all afraid to fail. And so there's this whole like motion to say, fail fast, fail often. But then this huge reluctance in the middle of, I don't want to fail at all. Right. And so it's just kind of a dirty word. And it's definitely a dirty action in the workplace. Well, and there's probably different kinds of failure, right? Like there's, this was a goal I should have been able to accomplish and I didn't, so I failed. And then there's like a a more experimental sort of failure that that I think is what people are mostly talking about, but we maybe conflate the two. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a really damaging part of failure in business is, hey, I have this great idea. I think we should all do it. And then convincing people to do it and then it not working out. Right. And I think that that's the difficulty with like change management or introducing innovation within a new company or, or even an older established company is when you come up with a new idea, it's difficult to be able to move people towards that idea without staking some personal capital. And so then what naturally happens, at least in my experience, is that we move into more of a consensus driven motion where we try to get other people to also create that idea together. But then that takes a long, long time. It starts to slow down the wheels of innovation, but it's a way to share risk. And it's a way so no one has to kind of fall on the sword if things don't turn out the way that they were ultimately intended. It's difficult in terms of how do we fail fast, fail often? How do we innovate? How do we move quick? But also, 
how do we not risk our careers and the things that we're working so hard to do in the name of trying to make things better? So if you want to you know, follow that mindset of fail fast, fail often, fail cheap, you know, that, that same kind of framework, but you want to create a culture in which that actually happens, are there ways to do that? Yeah, there totally are ways to do it. And I think the best way to do it is just to hide all of the failure. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I think yeah. that we can do that. <laughs> yeah, which sounds totally simple, right? I mean, it sounds like, well, it's like, well, yeah, I know we get it because that's what we do. That's actually what we should do, especially as managers, is that we should create safe places for our employees to fail. Set the expectation that, hey, we want you to be trying new things. It's great to come up with an idea and we're going to test it in a way to where I'm going to protect you if it doesn't work out. And so instead of calling things failure, we just call them frequency of learning, right? Hmm. It's really stolen from lean startup, agile project management. But if we have a brand new idea, right, or if we have a function within a team, you know, I work in the marketing space, for instance, and marketing is a vertical that lives or dies from a performance perspective based upon innovation. And that's because people are attracted to new things, right? And so if all we're doing as marketers is following best practices, that means we're just using things that are already established, that people are already used to, the same type of copy, the same type of templates, the same type of strategy. And that's damaging because we're not going to achieve the full level of performance that we could from a marketing perspective in particular. And so we have to constantly innovate to be able to hit the performance metrics that we're trying to hit. However, that innovation is risky, right? Trying something new is inherently risky. Okay, we're going to move to a mobile-only landing page, or we have this brand new idea to create a different customer journey. Those are risky things to try in a large organization where there's a lot of visibility. So instead, what we've done is we've created a framework, right? But really, it's a process and it's a way of talking, and it's a, it's a semantic set of definitions to say, Let's think of all of the different ideas that we can. Let's package them into very small experiments to validate whether those ideas are good or not. And the ones that don't meet the threshold based upon our forecast, then we're just going to quietly sweep those aside. But we're really not going to report on them. We're going to report on the things that actually worked and the things that were successes because that's what everyone's looking for in business, right? Is fail fast, fail often for what, right? to find the thing that actually works. And so I think as managers, we have to create systems and process as well as the safe place for our team to feel truly unleashed so that their creativity can blossom in a safe spot. And then also so that their success can see the light of day. And so that's what we've been trying to perfect over the years is how to create that type of safe space, how to create reporting that illustrates the success so that ideas get traction, but then most importantly, how to get people that have been following such a rigorous structure their whole lives to be unleashed into a creative space so that they feel safe and free to innovate. And that's really the difficulty is getting people to mentally transition from a very structured upbringing where you, know, you have high school and you have college and you're told exactly what to do and how to do it and how you're going to be graded to achieve a certain level of success to then the ambiguity of corporate life where it's, we need you to increase revenue. And it's, well, how do I do that? And well, how am I going to be measured? And exactly what should I do? I mean, we're, we're really starting to adopt a very uninnovative culture 
that I think is going to be harmful for a lot of companies if they get stuck in this rut, right? Yeah. And well, what I'm hearing you say is that in the past or kind of way many teams operate is here's the objective, here's the strategy, let's go do this one thing and hope it works out. And we'll, you know, apply all of our best practices and we'll use all these things that we know how to do. And anything that becomes innovative becomes scary. But the alternative is to try a whole bunch of things and start to see what works based on some other set of objectives, right? Maybe you're not going after the big giant goal right away. There might be some interim steps where you got to fail a lot of times to find the things that work. And we're just not used to doing that. We're not used to doing that. And I think I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the, the most important thing is to establish that North Star, the strategic initiative. And then, you know, something that's been around for a very long time is to establish that SMART goal, right? So specific, measurable, actionable, responsible, and timely. So what are we really t- trying to achieve? We're trying to increase revenue by this percentage, by this time with this team of people. But then once that goal has been established, then how do you get people to invest the personal real estate and investment to drive their ideas into that process? And I think that's where most organizations are very good at developing awesome strategic initiatives, right? Everyone's already read the book. Why? Like, why do we exist? They've developed that amazing mission statement. So they have kind of like the the North Star of who we are and why we exist. And then it's really easy to build out these amazing strategic initiatives. But then what ends up happening in terms of slowing teams down is a failure to really bring forth new ideas because of fear, I think. Because what we see is that the people who succeed are the people who actually usually do fewer things, but those fewer things are the successful things. And so we see people that are being promoted are the ones who are successful. But what we don't see is all of the failure that's stacked in between those things that was necessary for those people and those organizations to achieve that success. So that's where setting the expectation, especially for a department of people or a group of people, that, hey, we're going to be innovative, but this is how we're going to manage it. And this is how the visibility is going to then come in to see really just the most impactful success. So let's get really practical. I'm leading a team. I want us to be more innovative, to take some more risks, to try some new things. Lay out the process for me. How do I get my team to start thinking and working in these new ways? Exactly. So the first thing is setting that goal and being very specific about what that goal is and why that goal is important to the company. People definitely need to feel like they have a purpose in terms of, okay, I need to have some motivation in terms of why I'm even being innovative in in the first place, right? And so that's the leader's goal is to take that vision and then set the goals and communicate it to the team. So it's crystal clear in terms of why we're doing these things and exactly what it is that we're trying to achieve. I think everyone probably knows that, right? I'm not saying anything new there. The second component is then the process by which you're driving innovation. And so this is where it does get very practical is that, you know, something that we do on our team is is first setting aside the time for innovation. I think something that's probably common across anyone who works or anyone who's trying to achieve something is that we get sucked into the whirlwind of just life, right? Of just, hey, I've got this new email that's going out. I, have, I need this report filed. Hey, this person wants this information for this other report. 
And so this is the whirlwind of just reactive work. And so the first step for innovation is, I think, setting aside the cultural time so that innovation is protected. And I think that, you know, I've even seen that just from an anthropology perspective, like back in college, is that the cultures who developed arts and who developed like a lot of the creativity and the things that we enjoy today are the cultures who also had agriculture, which then drove a lot of free time as opposed to like hunter-gatherer cultures, which is interesting to study. So as a very distant correlation, we need to make sure that the time for innovation is built into our schedules and that it's protected, that it's a priority, and that we make the connection between innovation to achieving that higher result. So then in a practical sense, we have the time, we're dedicating that time. There's a number of different methods that will then drive innovation within different types of personalities. You're going to have the person in the room, let's say you schedule a meeting, right? An hour long innovation meeting where we're just going to whiteboard a bunch of different ideas. You're going to have probably three people that are going to do a lot of talking and a ton of whiteboarding because they're verbal processors, right? And then you're going to have another group of people that are probably in the middle spectrum and they might chime in with a couple good questions that then refine those ideas. And then you're going to have a third group of people who are often very valuable and they're usually just not super comfortable with throwing out a challenge or throwing out a new idea that might derail more powerful personalities. And so it's very important when you're trying to drive innovation across a diverse team is to have multiple mechanisms to be able to drive that innovation and collect that innovation. So something we use is we use a combination of anonymous forms we use different Trello boards for people to just add ideas in that format. And then we also use meetings and a process centered around writing ideas individually first on just a stack of post-its. And then each person presents those ideas. That's collecting the ideas and making sure that you have multiple avenues for different personalities to be able to submit their ideas. That's one of the key components there. I just want to throw out that I, one, love that you're talking about personalities because it's something that we talk about on the show a fair amount about there are different ways of approaching work and there's no right way to do it. So it's important as a manager to be cognizant that different people are going to engage in different ways and everybody has ideas. Yes, there are some people who tend to be more idea people and generative in that way and other people who are more along the lines of executors and taking ideas and bringing them to life. And sometimes you get people who do both and sometimes you get people who are kind of all across the spectrum in terms of how they engage in meetings, how and when they have their best ideas. So I love that you're from the start saying we can't just rely on one mode to get ideas on the table. We have to be thinking how can people share at the right time in the way that feels most comfortable for them and get those good ideas because they can come from anyone and anywhere. And at any time too, that's also one of the struggles is that sometimes like 9 a.m. on Monday is not the creative time period for people, right? For me, it's for sure not, right? Like I'm in kind of like a robotic email answer mode. I'm definitely not in like an enlightened state of innovation. For me, that usually happens like late at night after I'm decompressing from a day and I finally have some quiet time. And then all of a sudden an idea will just hit me like a brick out of the sky. Mm -hmm. There's so many different systems that can become a catch for that. But I think getting people into the habit of using something like Trello, where the board is available on their phone and they can just drop an idea in. 
No problem. One thing that I think is very important is you need to have an incredibly low threshold for submitting an idea. It should take someone less than three seconds to just jot a quick one sentence, hit the form submit, and then it's done. If you have a massive intake process, like a lot of these portfolio project management tools that, you know, it's like you're submitting this tax form to submit an idea, that's going to really slow down people's willingness to submit ideas, right? Just because I don't want to do that (laughs) at 8.30 at night, right? All right, keep going. What's the next step? Um, I think in that, though, you hit on something that's really important just just in terms of respecting every individual's capacity for earth-shattering ideas. And I think that's where the diversity of the team really comes into play. And so if your current team is getting a little stale, it's totally fine to invite people from other departments or even colleagues from non-competitor clients to come in and just go on a riff session because the diversity of a team is going to generate much richer ideas. And so getting creative with the types of people that you pull into these types of sessions, they can really breathe new life, new energy, and new new passion into the room. And so that's definitely a component of it that I think is, is worth mentioning. Nice. Okay, so then we get into the point where we haven't solved the fact that people are still nervous about submitting a new idea that could potentially fail, that could potentially make them look bad, right? And so this is where we start to figure out how to cast these ideas in a different manner. And so instead of talking about them in measures of success or failure, we talk about them as opportunities for learning. And I know that that sounds like uh, your typical consultant buzzword sort of pass through, but it's very important in terms of we set a KPI internally for a frequency of learning within the organization. So we want to learn at least 12 new things per week, right? We're running sprints and we're going to execute experiments to have 12 new pieces of learning based upon that strategic initiative. Knowing that whether it's something that disproves a theory or something that proves this theory is going to push us further down the destination to achieving our objective. And so that way we're able to actually celebrate the fact that, hey, something didn't work out the way that we wanted it to Um, versus, wow, that actually was exactly what we thought was going to happen. They're equal in terms of that KPI, which is still the highest priority KPI to track. The second component from a practical perspective is making these experiments incredibly lean. I think in a corporate environment, there's probably too many smart people on most teams, right? There's too many people who have really good ways on how to make this a more complex idea. And so it's very important to constrain the inventory of capacity. And what I mean by that is, okay, you've come up with your idea. Now you need to come up with your experiment and your method of testing whether this is a good idea. And you're only going to have eight hours to do that. So you have to whittle this idea down into some type of measurement and some type of experiment that's going to give you some level of customer feedback or a measure that's going to point you into the right direction of whether to promote this or demote it. And that should be done within eight hours. That's what we use for our team. It can totally adjust depending upon the type of work or the type of company that you're at. But certainly creating a constraint is so important. Otherwise, things are just going to slow down. You're going to all of a sudden be passing this around to different departments. There's going to be, hey, we should bring in this person. We should bring in this person. The next thing you know, you've just turned this thing into a massive waterfall project with a lot of risk. 
So you have this first gate where you're executing small experiments and the ones that don't necessarily work out, those are the ones that you just mark as learnings. And then the ones that do work out, those are the ones that you then build into larger project plans because you have a higher sense of them actually being successful. And so it's a way to then encourage the team to know that they have a safe place to be able to execute experiments and bring ideas, but then that the good ideas, the ones that actually are building upon the success of the business or the achievement of that strategic initiative are going to see the light of day and are going to get promoted into larger projects. This is like, this makes so much sense. And one of the organizations I work with has something called learning objectives, where they start from the beginning by saying, we're not 100% sure how we're going to get to this goal. So we need to have learning objectives. What do we need to learn in order to refine our strategy and to refine our approach to be able to achieve that goal? And by having learning objectives, the whole intent is we're going to try a bunch of stuff and we're going to learn from that. So even in the way that they talk about setting those goals, they're talking about it from a learning perspective. So I love the, the language that you're using here and talking about not failures, but learnings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's encouraging too, because learning is a very intoxicating thing, right? I mean, even when something fails, it's like, wow, that was really interesting. I mean, I think we can all look back to childhood and Legos and building forts and things like that. I think everyone is creative, right? Everyone has the desire to create. If you look at a group of children in a room, they're all tinkering with something, right? And when something knocks down or it doesn't work, there's usually like a lot of giggling. You know, they're like, well, that was pretty exciting. And so I think it's making sure that like our teams <laughs> have that childlike wonder in their eyes, right? Not really, but that they feel like encouraged and protected to be able to run those types of experiments, knowing that learning is exciting, but yet that it leads to much larger success that's going to benefit their careers in dramatic yeah. ways. Yeah. Right? And as you're saying also, like you need to kill some ideas, right? I think right, what you're oh, saying, yeah. like if you let it go on and on and on, if you don't create some parameters up front, then one experiment becomes a huge project in of itself. And you, can, you just can't handle that much. It's too much for your team. And then it stops being about learning and starts being about getting it right. Exactly. Because it's so bad to fail when things have spiraled beyond something small, right? And that's the biggest risk is that, okay, I've got this great idea. And oh, well, hey, you know what? That's actually Todd's space. So let's bring Todd into this meeting and let's create like kind of a functional team around this project. Oh, uh, we should bring Cynthia in because this has kind of a legal component. Hey, we should bring Jim in because he's also doing a similar project on this. And then all of a sudden, now you're creating a lot of PowerPoint presentations. You have kind of a work stream plan that you're updating on a regular basis. There's all sorts of open questions and issues, and you've gone full steam into like waterfall project management. And then it becomes very difficult to say, hey, you know what? We're starting to see that this idea is not good, so we're just going to shut this down. Well, now all of a sudden, Todd, Cynthia, and what other fake name I made, now they're kind of bummed out too, and you sort of look bad. And that's the biggest risk is that then what ends up happening is people won't let these bad ideas die because they've gotten too big. And now all of a sudden there's all this emotion and bad news sort of image stuff that's working in and making it super cloudy and, and messy. Oh, yes. Oh, well, I feel yeah. like we could go on and on and on, but we're going to have to start to wrap up. So as we shift gears a little bit, as you know, this podcast is called The Modern Manager, and it's all about being a rock star manager with a thriving team. So can you tell us about one of the amazing managers that you've had the pleasure of working for and with and what made him or her so great? 
Yeah, he's probably one of the more demanding managers that I worked with. His name was Josh Swissman. I think he's the a CMO in Las Vegas now. And I was really big into marketing early in my career because I thought I was a creative person. And as soon as I started working with Josh Swissman, he was, hey, I need you to build out a pro forma for that marketing idea. And I'm like, a pro forma, what is that? And he's like, you don't know what a pro forma is? <laughs> he's like, here's a template. And it was this huge Excel template. And it was basically, this is how much revenue that we think we're going to be able to add from this marketing campaign. Here's the indirect costs, the direct costs. And then we're going to hit this target margin of 35% or so. And he was like Mr. Miyagi Karate Kid with me on that. I mean, I would go to his office. He would be like, what's the deal with this cell? What's up with this cost? It was unbelievable how quickly he could see the slop in what I was creating. But over time, we were able to refine that process. And I started to see that this is like the foundation for moving higher up executives. If we can put things in a data-driven format to show the value of the ideas that we have, then we don't have to sell anything. We're just influencing people based upon finance, which is the core of business, right? And so that then circles back to really being the foundation for this entire process is part of that ideate process. We still use that exact same template that Josh Swissman was so instrumental in kind of ingraining into my mind, a non-finance guy. Um, so that's a template that we'll include and I'll send over to you, but it's something that we still use as kind of that measure of, here's the idea, here's what we think it's going to do. And, and then it's very easy to move people to join that type of idea if the numbers are solid. And so I still look back on that first job as a turning point for me, just, just mentally and especially foundationally as I've then gone on to consulting and, and helping drive a lot of innovation within our clients' organizations. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to see this template. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And uh, where can people keep up with you, learn more about what you do, all that good stuff? Yeah. So our, our website's gosolomon.com, but then you can find me on Twitter and all of those various social media channels. So we're pretty active on that. And, you know, we love brainstorming with folks. And so if, if there's some questions or there's some missing pieces and how do you do this? How do you drive traction here? Feel free to reach out because we definitely love just helping. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. It was really a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. If you want the template that Jesse mentioned, you can get it when you join the Modern Manager community on Patreon. When you join, you'll also get access to all the other guest bonuses and episode guides including a 30% off personality-based coaching session with me, in which we'll determine your best fit personality type using the Type Coach Verifier and identify how you express those preferences as a manager and what you can do to work more effectively with colleagues who have both the same and different preferences as your own. Go to patreon.com slash modernmanager. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash modernmanager. The link, of course, is in the show notes. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, you have it in your inbox. To subscribe, go to mamieks.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit Meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell. 
To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.